0: Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing uh, in this rather long series that we've begun called Out of Bondage Into Abundance. And we have now made it to part five. There are actually seven parts, so we're making pretty good progress here. Uh, If anyone new is joining us, the notes and the recordings for all of the previous studies are available at our website, that's at new-life-ministries.org, and again, you can get both the outline notes and recordings for each one of the previous sessions. Okay, so we've come to page 57, if you are following along in the notes, part 5 We're now leaving Mount Sinai, and we're going into the desert. And this is a very important part of the whole story. Uh, It didn't need to take as long as it did, as we will see in a minute, but this actually takes up almost 40 years of the entire journey, and we're going to try to condense it down to several studies, but obviously it makes up a large chunk of time in Israel's journey. Remember, God brought them out to take them in. His ultimate purpose was to take them into the land of Canaan, to possess that land, and once they finish their journey through the wilderness there are yet other challenges that we will look at in part 6, namely, seven nations that occupied the land of Canaan, wicked, evil, perverse nations that God had already judged, but He gave Israel the responsibility of going in and driving out, dispossessing those nations. And then, ultimately, in part 7, We'll look at the process of Israel actually possessing the Promised Land. All right. We mentioned in the previous part, part four, that Israel spent almost an entire year at Mount Sinai. It was a very important stopping point and some very significant things God had to deal with and establish. before they began their journey. And especially, that sanctuary, the tabernacle, had to be completed. And now that the tabernacle has been completed, God's glory has filled the tabernacle, they are ready to leave Mount Sinai and to begin their journey. And we read these verses last time, I want to read them again. Numbers chapter 10, verses 11 to 13 it says on the 20th day of the second month of the second year the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai and traveled from place to place until the cloud came to rest in the desert of Paran they set out this first time at the Lord's command, through Moses. And if you do a little bit of investigation, you'll see that it was in the first month of the first year that Israel celebrated the first Passover in Egypt. And now we have come to the 20th day of the second month of the second year. So almost a full year has elapsed since the initial step of celebrating the Passover and Israel coming out of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb. They arrived at Mount Sinai in the third month of the first year. So now we're in almost the third month of the second year, one full year give or take a few days, has passed. Now that they've left Mount Sinai, it should be an easy trip straight into the Promised Land. For we are told in Deuteronomy 1 and verse 2 that it was actually an 11-day journey. This part always grips me when I read it. An 11-day journey that ended up taking 40 years. We have to ask why? What happened? Why such a long protraction of this seemingly simple trip into the promised land of 11 days and ending up taking 40 years? There are a number of reasons that I think we can find in the scriptures that would answer that question why. We're going to list five important purposes that God wanted to accomplish in the wilderness, in the desert. And God doesn't do anything without purpose. Everything he does for a reason. and. Every day of every one of those 40 years was for a purpose, as we will see. This wasn't some whimsical number that God pulled out of the air. He chose 40 years for a reason. And we're going to look at five things that God needed to accomplish, and apparently it took 40 years to do this. And we're going to go ahead and list them and then begin to look at them in some detail. Number one, the purpose of the desert was to humble them. To humble them. Number two, the purpose of the time in the wilderness was to test them in order to know what was in their heart. Thirdly, this experience in the wilderness was to teach them to live by the Word of God. Fourth thing we'll look at, the purpose of the wilderness, and these overlap somewhat. The purpose of the wilderness was to discipline them. And then finally, the reason it took 40 years was The ultimate purpose of their time in the wilderness was to remove all unbelief, rebellion, and backsliding. And that actually meant the removal of most of the original people who started off on this journey. So, recapping that again. Five important purposes for this time in the wilderness. To humble them to test them, to teach them, to discipline them, and to remove unbelief, rebellion, and backsliding. Most of these five objectives that we've just listed, you can actually see in one scripture passage, and we're going to keep coming back to this passage because it seems to encompass most of the reasons for Israel going into the wilderness, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we'll look initially at verses 2 to 5, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 to 5, this is Moses recounting at the end of their time in the wilderness, the reasons why it took them so long. Deuteronomy 8, starting with verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Now, let's stop already. They didn't just wander around. They were led. God led them all the way in the wilderness. So again, this wasn't some accident. They didn't take a wrong turn somewhere. This was purposed and planned by God. God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. And here it comes, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these forty years. Know then in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And you probably noticed that four of the five objectives that we're going to be looking at are all included in this one passage. To humble them, to test them, to teach them, and to discipline them. Tonight we're going to look at the first objective. This is a big one. It's a very important one. And this, of course, is especially needed for proud people. Now, I know none of us listening to this Bible study have problems with this, but in case you know someone who does, you might want to make a few notes here. God put them into the desert to humble them. You know, we are such proud creatures. It's part of our fall, it's part of our heritage that goes all the way back to Adam. But pride is a very, very dangerous thing. And God knows that, and He knew in the case of Israel that Ultimately, he wanted to bless them, to prosper them, to make them the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And he knew that if all that happened, and their hearts were proud, it would be the formula for disaster. So, this process must take place first. He must humble them before he can exalt them, and prosper them, and do all of the things that he promised he was going to do for them when he brought them into the promised land. We'll look at that aspect a little bit later on. But here we go again in Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you. He humbled you causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. The Hebrew word that's translated humbled here is a word which conveys the meaning of looking down on, browbeating, to depress, literally or figuratively, to abase, to afflict, to chasten, to deal hardly with, to weaken. None of those words sound very good. This doesn't sound like it's going to be a very pleasant experience, and it's not. And by the way, I had the privilege, if I can use that word, um, many years ago to travel through the Sinai Desert in Israel. I have never been so hot, so thirsty in my entire life. And we traveled for hours looking at nothing but rocks and sand dunes. We didn't see a single green plant. We didn't see a single human being. It was utter desolation. And I'll never forget, We had no water left in the car, and we got to a little gas station out in the middle of nowhere, and everybody in the car started to cheer and thank God, because now there was going to be some water to drink. Nope, no water at all. And I'll never forget, you know, you hear stories of how people get kind of delirious, and they start acting weird when they're lost in the wilderness or in the desert. I can attest to that, because when we got to this gas station, I was so so thirsty, I actually began to, I don't know, almost hallucinate and think about drinking the gasoline. I mean, you do weird things when you get really, really thirsty. And that's what this wilderness experience was designed to do, to look down on, to browbeat, to depress, to abase, to afflict, to chasten, to deal hardly with, and to weaken. God knew the tendency of the human heart, and He knows the tendency of your heart and mine. It's to become proud and boastful, especially when success and prosperity comes our way. It's inevitable. The temptation is always there for us to become proud, start boasting, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished, look what I've written, look what I've said, look how much money I've made, look how many houses I own, and on and on and on it goes. God knows that about humankind. And so, the first thing on his agenda here, the first thing Moses listed, to humble you. Forty years in the wilderness to humble you. But, it goes on to say, and God is not cruel. God does everything, as we mentioned, with a purpose. He has an end In his mind, he has a goal where he wants to take us. And it actually says, he humbled the Israelites in order that in the end it might go well with them. Note those words, in the end it might go well. God is more concerned with how we end than where we are today. We may be in a situation right now that's not altogether pleasant. And God knows that. And it's not that He's cruel or insensitive to the fact that it may be unpleasant right now. He's more concerned with how we're going to end up. He humbled them in order that in the end it might go well with you. I don't know about you, but I encourage myself from time to time that whatever I'm going through right now, it may not be that great, may not be that pleasant, but there's an end. And God is concerned about my end. He wants that in my end, it might go well with me. And after He blessed them and multiplied them and exalted them in the land of Canaan, maybe they understood why this was so important. And following a little further down in Deuteronomy 8, God will explain a little bit more the importance of humility before prosperity, before exaltation, before success. Deuteronomy 8, let's start up again in verse 11. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Those are important words. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God. Now let's stop here for a minute. God is, Knows that ultimately he's going to prosper them. He knows that. One day he says, you're going to eat, be satisfied, you're going to build fine houses, your flocks and your herds are going to grow, your silver and gold is going to increase, and all that you have is going to be multiplied. But be careful because many a man or woman has traveled down that road only to end up in destruction. We can actually be destroyed by prosperity, by success, by power. And the only cure for all that is for God to deal with us first, to humble us, to break us, to abase us, to afflict us, to chasten us, to deal hardly with us, so that when that prosperity and success comes, we will not forget. Note those words. Be careful that you do not forget. I've studied this quite a lot in the Scriptures. Forgetfulness seems to be a perennial and chronic problem amongst God's people. We have to be very deliberate about remembering certain things. And especially when things start to go well, we're making more money, we're getting more famous, success is coming our way, God is using us, we're prospering, our ministries growing, our business is growing, whatever. God knows our tendency is in that season of success and prosperity, we start to forget the Lord. We start to actually become deceived. The Bible says pride is actually deception. The pride of our heart deceives us. And one aspect of that deception, we actually start to believe that all this success and all this prosperity is because of me. That's a big deception. Look at what I've done. Look how smart I am. Look at what I've accomplished. And that's why God warns them, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Otherwise, and watch this again, when you eat and are satisfied, you're fat, you're full now, you're not hungry like you were in the desert, and you build fine houses, you settle down, Times aren't hard anymore. Times are good. Times are easy. When your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increases, now you got money stashed away in the bank. And the thought begins to enter into our mind, I really don't need God anymore. I don't need to pray and fast like I used to because look at how well off I am. What a dangerous condition that is. Because when all that happens, when your herds grow large, and your silver and gold increases, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord. Those things happen simultaneously, your heart becomes proud, and you forget the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This takes us all the way back to the beginning. He brought them out through the blood of the Passover lamb. That's why God instituted the Passover as an annual memorial so that they wouldn't forget how God brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 15, He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness. Yeah, dreadful. Terrible, I think some Bibles say. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness. And now we're going to get some more details about that experience. That thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions... Oh, delightful. Not only thirsty, hot, and waterless, we got venomous snakes and stinging scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness. And we're going to talk more about this. One of the things that God is going to accomplish here in the wilderness, there's no water. There's no food. There's no shelter whatsoever. They're out in the middle of nowhere. They have to depend on God now. Their water and their food is going to have to come from God and from God alone. That's part of this humbling process. They can't run to the cupboard. They can't plant some crops and harvest it and say, look what I did. Now they have to depend on God for everything. Verse 16. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, and here it comes again, to humble and test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. So, God didn't want this to end up badly. He wanted them to end up well. And so, in order that everything would go well for them in their end, He now has to deal very hardly with them. He has to humble them not just for a day, or a week, or a year, but for 40 years. He led them through this vast and dreadful wilderness, a thirsty and waterless land with venomous snakes and scorpions. As I just mentioned, the desert has a way of bringing you to the end of yourself and your resources. And that's really what God designed it for. He wanted to bring them to the end of depending on themselves. And you know, we hear so much in modern culture about self reliance. You got to depend on yourself, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you're going to make it. No. You're not going to make it. That's what this process teaches us. You can't make it. You don't have what it takes. You're bankrupt. You fall short of everything you need. You can't make it without God. And so the desert is designed to bring us to an end of self-confidence, dependence on self, and it teaches us to put our dependence on God. God brought them very quickly to a place in the desert of total dependence on God. They had to look to God for their daily bread, their water, their very sustenance. This was carefully designed by God to break all of their self-sufficiency. And you know, self is a very strong thing. Some people are more self-sufficient than others, and it takes some real severe breakings to bring us to the end of that self-sufficiency that basically says, I can do it, I can make it, I can deal with this situation, I don't need help from anyone. Oh really? (laughs) Wait till God's done with you. He'll bring you to the end of yourself. And all this boasting, look what I can do, look what I've done. I can take care of myself. The wilderness is designed to bring all of that to an end. Now, we could talk much more about Israel, but let's bring this over into our experience. For the New Testament believer, I never cease to marvel at the wisdom of God in the way He planned our salvation. And maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but it goes something like this. God takes rotten sinners, depraved, hopeless, fallen sinners that are enemies of God, They're lost, already sentenced to hell. The wrath of God is already resting on their heads. He takes those scoundrels, he washes them, cleanses them, gives them a new heart, a new mind, fills them with his Holy Spirit, calls them saints, and then promises them, you're going to sit with me on my throne and you're going to rule and reign forever and ever in my kingdom. It sounds like a fairy tale. That's wild. Nevertheless, that is, in a nutshell, the Gospel. What is even more amazing is God promises to do all of that and ultimately have us seated on the throne with Jesus Christ. This is all biblical. I don't have time to go into the verses. If you doubt, you can read... Revelation 3.20 and many other verses. He will sit with me in my throne, even as I sat down in my Father's throne. The throne of God. And yet, we will have no pride, no human boasting. That's, for me, that's the beauty of the Gospel. That God does all of that, and at the same time, He breaks and eliminates all human pride, all self-righteous boasting. And I want to take you through a couple of very important scriptures. There are more, but I think these are enough to demonstrate what I'm talking about. A very well-known passage. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Hallelujah. Praise God for His grace. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. Underline that in big red letters. This is not from yourselves, salvation did not come from you, you can't save yourself, has nothing to do with you, it is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, and here's the part I want you to really notice, not by works, so that no one can boast. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves us, heals us, delivers us, exalts us, gives us eternal life, eternal hope, gives us a kingdom, an eternal inheritance, and at the same time, it removes all boasting. We have nothing to brag about. Nothing. It's not from ourselves. Boasting is, look what I can do. Look how smart I am, look how clever I am, look how much I possess. Well, it's not from yourself, so it eliminates any selfish boasting because the gospel of Jesus Christ is based 100%, not 99.9, 100% on grace. Has nothing to do with any of our works, any of our accomplishments. Now, maybe you've accomplished a lot in your life. Praise God for that. has nothing to do with your salvation, though. You can go to college for 50 years and have 20 titles and degrees after your name. That's not going to save you. You can have billions of dollars in the bank, as some people do. That's not going to save you. You can boast about all your money. You can boast about all your titles. You may have great power. You may be a president or a prime minister, a dictator. You can say off with his head, and it's off. You can boast about all that power, but not before God, because it won't save you. So, salvation eliminates all boasting. In other words, it lays the axe to the roots of pride. It is extremely humbling to get saved. That's why a lot of people don't want to get saved. It means humbling yourself. It means admitting, I can't do this on my own. I can't make it on my own. Another very important passage that demonstrates this, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26 to 31. Have you noticed there's sort of a common denominator amongst true believers, most of them went through some kind of a tragedy, a breaking, a trial, some situation that brought them to the end of themselves, brought them down to their knees, and that seems to be a pre a prerequisite to salvation. And then there are others who Don't seem to have any real problems. They're rich, they're famous, everything's going well for them, and you try to share the gospel with them, and they're not the least bit interested. And you almost begin to wonder what is it going to take to bring this person to their knees? What kind of a tragedy, what kind of a breaking, what sort of a humbling must they go through to bring them to the end of themselves? 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 26. Paul is writing to Christians in Corinth, and he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. That's an important exercise, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, not forgetting. Remember who you once were, Think of what you were when you were called. In other words, remember back to your condition the night you first received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Don't ever forget that. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential Not many were of noble birth. Verse 27, But God chose the foolish things of the world. It almost seems like a deliberate act. God deliberately chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly. Remember, the purpose of humbling is to bring us low. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and this is my favorite in the list, the things that are not. Things that are not. (laughs) Zeros, nothings, nobodies. The things that are not to nullify the things that are. Interesting. Why did God do all of this? The answer is in verse 29. He deliberately chose the foolish, deliberately chose the weak, deliberately chose the lowly and the despised and the nothings and the nobodies, so that no one may boast before Him. So that, There's a purpose for all of these things. What is it? It's to eliminate, to exclude, to silence all boasting, so that no one may boast before Him. But God knows we are very boastful creatures, and one way or another, we're all going to be boasters. So he explains that in the next two verses. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's okay to boast, just don't boast about yourself. Boast in the Lord. Brag about the great things God has done. Boast about the cross. Brag about Jesus Christ. Brag about the living God. Tell people all you want about the great things God has done for you. But don't waste your time or other people's time talking about your greatness. Oh, I did this. I have this. I accomplished this. Who cares? It's all Vanity, it's all straw to be burned up in the fires of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you know, we can become Christians. We can even be in ministry. We can be pastors, or apostles, or prophets, evangelists. We can have a great ministry and still end up destroying ourselves if we're not careful to heed this principle. I've heard ministers boast and boast and boast. Oh, I've started 45 churches. Oh yeah, I have a multi-million dollar corporation now under my care. Oh really, you did that? huh? Let no one boast before him. And I think you'll find if you're deliberate about boasting in the Lord, it'll save you and protect you from all this other foolish boasting. And, you know, when you get around a boastful person who's bragging about how rich they are, how many cars they have, how many houses they own, or even how many souls they've won, or how many churches they've started, or how many demons they've cast out, it it really makes you feel sick. And it's like, ew! I don't want to hear all this. You get around somebody who loves to praise the Lord. They give glory to God. They boast in the Lord. It lifts your spirit up. And so, this is a very important aspect to the Gospel. God humbles us, and even the very Gospel humbles us and brings us to the end of ourselves. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. God designed salvation so that it would not be based at all on our merits, on our good deeds, on our own righteousness. So we have nothing to boast about in ourselves. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 5 to 6. It says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud. That's a scary thought there. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. He brought them into the wilderness and led them through the wilderness to humble them. And for you and for me, God is the master engineer. He knows just the right things wilderness to engineer for you. It may not be the same wilderness that I need. But he'll engineer wilderness situations, thorns, trials, troubles, hardships, chastenings, persecutions. He'll engineer a situation that's custom designed just for you to bring you to the end of yourself. He designs these things. And I want to highlight again, God led them through the wilderness. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't a wrong turn that they took. This was deliberate. God engineered these situations to accomplish those five objectives that we listed at the beginning tonight. So, when we find ourselves in thorns, trials, troubles, strange situations, far beyond our human ability, far beyond our human ability to endure. He's doing it to teach us to stop depending on ourselves and to start trusting in Him. Learn how to lean on the Lord depend totally upon the Lord. You know, when you're strong and self-sufficient, you don't need to lean on anything. We lean on something when we need support. And people who need a cane, a walking stick, a walker, or even something more sophisticated, it's because something in their own condition has been weakened or compromised. Well, spiritually speaking, we're told to trust not in ourselves, trust not in our own understanding, but lean on the Lord. Let's look at a very interesting passage in 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul tells us a little bit about his own experience. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. (coughs) He says, "...we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles, note the word, troubles, we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure." whoa, troubles and pressures far beyond our ability to endure. Well, maybe I was wrong about something I said earlier. Maybe God was just tormenting them. Maybe God's mean or cruel. Why would He put a human being in a situation that is beyond their human ability to endure. Well, it goes on to say, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Sounds pretty bad. Despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Wow, strong language. But here comes the most important part. But this happened so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Whether you're talking about Israel in the wilderness of Sinai, or you're talking about a Christian in 2015, who's going through pressures, stress, troubles, or trials, the end result is the same. It's all designed so that we will stop relying on ourselves and start relying on God. Leaning on the Lord, trusting in God, depending totally on God. That's what happened to the Israelites in the desert to the point they had to rely on God for their food and their water every day. Paul says here, we were put in some situations, troubles, and great pressures that were beyond our ability to endure. And when you're in a situation like that, it produces despair. We despaired of life. You begin to lose hope. You begin to think, I'm not going to make it. I can't handle this. I'm going to die. Well, he says, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But it wasn't really the end. It wasn't really death. There was a purpose for this. This happened so that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. The purpose of the wilderness is to teach us to trust in God. To bring us to the end of ourselves so that we will trust in the Lord. While we're here in 2 Corinthians, let's look at two other passages as we bring this first part to a close tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, and then into chapter 3, We'll look at verses 5 and 6. Paul is talking here in chapter 2 about being the fragrance or the aroma of Christ to those around us. And he says, to the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. I don't have time to go into this in depth tonight, but he seems to be suggesting that to certain people, we're not going to be a welcome visitor. We're going to be like death walking into their lives, and they're going to reject us. So, to some, we are the aroma of death leading to death. Those are people that are living in sin, They don't want to hear the gospel. They've rejected Christ. They want to go on in their sin, their selfishness, and their rebellion. And you and I represent a threat to them. They don't like us. And we're seeing this more and more in our culture now. People hate Christians. They hate Christianity. They're not neutral toward it. They hate Christians. They're they're passionately opposed to anyone who stands for God. So that's the aroma of death leading to death but to others we are the aroma of life leading to life who is sufficient for these things that's a very probing question who is sufficient for these things well I'm not you're not we're not no one is And Paul answers his own question in chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Here it is again, not of ourselves. Salvation is not of ourselves. Ministry is not of ourselves. We can't do anything in ourselves. We are not sufficient. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And that's why we need wildernesses to bring us to the end of ourselves. Bring us to that place that Paul just described where It's beyond our ability. We can't make it. We can't do it. We're not sufficient in and of ourselves. And again, this is counter to everything that modern culture would teach us. This cuts against the grain of all the modern self-help books that say, reach down inside yourself and find the real you. You can do it. You can make it. Paul says, no you can't. The wilderness will teach you that. You're not sufficient in yourself. So the sooner you quit trying, the sooner God can get on with His program in your life. Remember, the scary part of this whole story tonight is God opposes the proud. He opposes the boastful. He opposes those who still think, I can do it, it's all about me, I'm the great one. No, you're not. Our sufficiency is from God. And while we're on this note about boasting, Paul has more to say in 2 Corinthians 12. You know the passage, but I want to read it. 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul had quite a bit to boast about. He was the greatest apostle, arguably, that ever lived. He received great revelations from God, wrote half of the New Testament. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up in the paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. And though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I, but I refrain, lest any one should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me, and lest I should be exalted above measure. Notice, the man he's talking about is obviously himself. And now, he cuts to the chase in verse 7, he's talking about himself. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Remember, the word to humble means to browbeat, to abase, to afflict, or to beat down. Something now has been given to Paul to buffet him. It's a thorn, an irritating thorn in the flesh. Lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me, and he said to me, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul goes a little further here and says, there is one area where it's legal to boast. You can boast about your humblings, you can boast about your weaknesses, you can boast about your needs, your distresses, your reproaches, your persecutions. For when you're weak, then you are strong. And if you look through this passage that I just read very carefully, it's all about the need for us to be humbled so that we won't exalt ourselves. Because if we exalt ourselves, we will be destroyed. And the, the dilemma, if I can use that word, that God has is this. Lucifer was an exalted creature. He was anointed by God. He had a very, very high position in heaven. But we read in Isaiah 14 and also in Ezekiel 28 that he exalted himself. I will set my throne. I will, I will, I will. And God cast him down because of his pride. Now, as I mentioned, through the Gospel, God wants us to sit upon His throne. But the only ones that will share His throne are the humble. He will not have a repeat of what happened with Lucifer, where somebody gets up in there saying, look how great I am, I'm going to push myself, I'm going to boast myself, I'm going to exalt myself. It won't happen. That's why God is dealing with us now. And this will dovetail with what we're going to study next week, and that is how God tested them in the wilderness. Part of our humblings are what we refer to as tests and trials. And we'll explain more about what a true test or what a true trial is next time, But these work hand in hand. Trials are designed to humble us, to drive us to our knees, to cause us to depend on the Lord and not upon ourselves. What does the Scripture say? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trusting in God is like leaning and there's a beautiful verse that I want to end with tonight. It's found in the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, which is a beautiful picture of the relationship between the king and his bride. And here in Songs eight verse five, it says, "Who is this coming up from the wilderness?" leaning on her Beloved. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her Beloved? I believe one of the great purposes and designs of the wilderness is to produce this attitude of leaning on our Beloved. Total abandon. Total dependence on God. God, I can't do anything on my own. I need you, I need you, I need you for everything. My food, my drink, my clothing, my very life depends on you. It breaks all of that human boasting and self-sufficiency which will indeed drag us into hell if it's not broken and dealt with. So this first objective is the most important of all. God took them into the desert. He led them through the wilderness to humble them. But, it was to humble them so that in the and it might go well with them. You see, when you and I come to a place of leaning on our beloved, when we come to a place of total dependency on God, that's not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. And when you and I can truly say, I can do nothing without Christ. I can do nothing without without God in my life. To God be all the glory. I praise Him, I exalt Him all day long. My salvation came from Him. It's not because of my works or my cleverness, and it certainly is not because of my righteousness. I have one and only one boast. I boast in the Lord. You know it's not in the notes here but another scripture comes to me in Galatians 6 where Paul says God forbid God forbid God don't let it happen that I should ever stop boasting in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we can boast about. Boast about Calvary Boast about the love of God. Boast about the great things that God has done. And I think we'll find that less and less of our time is wasted boasting about our so-called greatness. May God help us to humble ourselves. And we'll talk about this at another time later on in this study. But there are two different experiences. We can either be humbled by God... Or we can humble ourselves. It's actually preferable that we humble ourselves. But sometimes God has to humble us. And that was the first great objective here in the wilderness. To humble them. To abase them. To, yes, the word literally means to beat down, to abase, to chasten, to deal hardly with. Some of the things we go through in life are not pleasant. They're hard. Sometimes we feel squeezed and pressed and broken and, and pressed beyond measure, beyond what we can endure. God knows that He's doing it so that in the end, things go well with us. Let's pray tonight that we would cooperate with God and with His Holy Spirit as He leads us through our little wildernesses, through our trials and tests and breakings, that we would be encouraged to know that He's doing it for a reason. It's so that in the end, things will go well with us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the wisdom, the insight, the understanding that Your Word gives to us. Sometimes, Lord, in in, in life, we don't know what's going on. We, we seem uh, to be in a fog. We feel like we're in a dry, howling desert with nothing but snakes and scorpions around us, and we don't even know how we got there. And, Lord, it's not always because of anything we've done wrong. You've brought us there to humble us. You brought us there to teach us and to discipline us. And Lord help us in those times to draw closer to You. To stop leaning on ourselves and start depending more and more on You. You're a faithful God and You will complete the great work which You've started in each one of our lives. And Lord, the beauty of this story is often missed. You were there with them. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You never left them. You never forsook them. You were right there in their midst throughout those 40 years in the wilderness. And likewise, God, you've promised you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us. You'll always be with us even in the fiery furnace, even through the floodwaters, you're always there with us. And you've told us, do not fear, for I am with you. God bless and encourage each and every one on this Bible study line tonight. Let the words that we have spoken penetrate and dwell in our hearts. Give us hope, give us victory, Give us that assurance that You are with us and You are working in our lives for good. We bless You and we praise You tonight in Jesus' holy name. Amen.